Who likes looking at their family tree? A few people. Who'd rather keep it in the cupboard and uh, not open up some of the skeletons? Um, like Rex said, there's a lot of exciting stuff here, and well done to Ali for reading all those names, and uh, well rehearsed, I think. Um, and it would be exciting, wouldn't it? I've got 42 biographies to read to you today. That's the exciting stuff about today. Matthew's Gospel begins with these 42 generations, and I thought we'd just go through each of them and get into the nitty-gritty of... No, that's not what we're doing at all. But there is a lot of exciting stuff if you know a few of those names. To actually look into individuals, we could do that. You could do a whole series on that. Take you most of the year, wouldn't it? If you grew up in the 80s, as I did, um, reading and watching The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy... You would know the answer to the old age question, age old question, what's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? 42. 42. Thank you. Um, you need to go back and look up Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if you don't know that. Now, I'm not sure if the, the writers of that series had read Matthew's Gospel, if they were trying to make some deep, sort of symbolic, allegorical comment or connection with the Gospel. I don't think so. Uh, but Matthew got in first by about 1900 years. Um, and he was definitely suggesting that there's something significant about the numbers here in Matthew 1. 42, um, breaking down this long genealogy into three sections of 14, 14 times three generations Abraham to David, David, David to the Babylonian exile, and to Jesus. The problem is Matthew forgot to tell us and anyone else exactly what the symbolism he was trying to bring through was. There is significance in the numbers, but he didn't tell us what that significance was. And there's actually a few discrepancies. If you're a careful reader of the Bible in the list, there's a few discrepancies. I won't go into all of that. But the commentators have had a lot of fun speculating and spending pages of ink coming up with all manner of suggestions. 42 is, after all, 6 times 7, so it's symbolic of six, lots of, uh, six weeks of generations. I'm not sure about that one. 2 times 7 is 14, symbolic apparently of plenitude and completeness, neither of which I think I'm very convinced of because Matthew is not saying 6 and 7 and um, 2 times 7, he's saying 14 and 3 and 42. But the number 14 was significant to the Jews, happens to be also the number of high priests from Aaron to Solomon's temple and then again from that temple to the last high priest of the Old Testament. Mm, interesting. But David's name in what we call gematria, in the Hebrew alphabet, if each letter is given a number, David's name, DVD, David, Dalet Vav Dalet, is 464, which adds up to 14. It could be as simple as that. David is significant in this genealogy. There's lots of other speculations and suggestions we could look at. Truth of the matter is we don't really know. Not about the numbers, that is. What exactly David was trying to convey. Looking at 14 times 3 from Abraham to David, David to Babylon and Babylon to Jesus. But what we do know, what we can glean from here and is that with absolute certainty is that the opening section of Matthew's Gospel, the thing Matthew did want us to know, both his readers then and now, is that the Messiah has come. All these names, all these generations, what he's trying to get to, the beginning of it says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and at verse 16, this is Jesus who was born, who was called the Christ. Matthew is saying he is here. We've been waiting all this time, through all these years, through all these generations, and finally the Messiah has arrived. Jesus the Christ, born of Mary, is the Messiah you've been waiting for. 
He makes that very clear, I think, just with his opening verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's not just his opening verse for the next 17 verses. It's his opening verse at least for the first two chapters, which we're going to be looking at up to Christmas, and maybe even the whole gospel. The word genealogy in the Greek is in fact the word Genesis. Don't know if you knew that. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ and that's meant to make us think back to Old Testament Genesis. Mark opens his gospel with this is the beginning, the Genesis of the good news and he starts with Jesus' baptism. Matthew says, no, no, this is the beginnings of Jesus Christ and that goes way back to Abraham and even further back when you think of the word Genesis taking us back to the book of Genesis. Jesus didn't just come up one day, plan B, plan C for God. He's been planned all the way back here. This is the beginning, or better still, I think Matthew's telling us this is the gospel, the good news. This is the new beginning. This is the story, the book, not only of the birth of Jesus, but of the new creation, the new Genesis for God's people. And it's brought about through the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what he really wants us to see in naming all these generations and all these people. The blank page in your Bible, I've got one. If you've got a phone, you probably don't have a blank page. Can I really encourage you? Phones are great because you carry them around. You can have your Bible with you always. Get a hard copy if you don't have one. Read a hard copy. It's good and helpful for you. I think it is. But that blank page between your Old Testament and New Testament represents about 400 years of history. With the 400 years which some theologians call the silent years. There's no prophet in that time the end of your old testament in the end of malachi finishes with the promise of elijah to return for god to come and speak to his people again and for 400 years they're waiting for that fulfillment the new testament begins and john the baptist arrives on the scene and guess what he comes in the spirit and power of elijah god's people from Abraham onwards, and especially in that blank page, were a waiting, hopeful, expectant people, or at least they were meant to be if they listened to God's word and were looking forward to his word being fulfilled. I'd like to think they waited with patient endurance and great hope and eager expectation for every one of those 400 years. But a bit like us, I think, I'm sure they wavered and they wandered and they doubted along the way but they didn't completely forget the promises of God. Not all of them anyway. They were waiting for the promised seed that God had promised way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. They'd been waiting for the offspring of Abraham to come and for his descendants to reach the number of the stars in the sky. They'd been waiting for the throne of David to be restored and for one to sit on that throne forever as God had promised David. God's people then and now, us today, are to be an expectant, waiting, hopeful people as we wait for Christ's appearance again. However long it takes, are we going to waver? Are we going to wander and doubt and fail? Or will we wait with eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed, just as creation is? We've been loving looking at some of this stuff on Wednesday nights as we're looking at God's covenants And it just fits so well with here because it's all about God's covenant promises being fulfilled. His covenant word. 
We are meant to be a waiting, hope-filled, expectant people. And Matthew has been one of them. And he's telling us the wait is over. Jesus Christ has been born. Actually, Jesus has been born and he is the Christ. Many of us will know Christ is not his surname. It's not Jesus' last name, is it? But it's worth reminding ourselves that it's Jesus who is the Christ. Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple who's writing this gospel, that's pretty much uncontested. Um, He could have said Jesus, the son of Joseph, or the son of the carpenter, or Jesus of Nazareth. But no, in verse 1 and at verse 16, he said this Jesus is the Christ. He's making that point. And it's the only time actually in verse 1 that he actually puts Jesus Christ together as a title in his whole gospel. It appears once or twice in other versions, but in the original, that was the only place. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, at which Ali's version read for us, the anointed one. He is the promised king, which is Matthew's main point here. There are other offices. There was prophet and there was priest who were also anointed ones. But here I think Matthew's focus is he's the king. He is the son of David that we've been waiting for. He describes Jesus at the very top, the son of David. He uses the term king 22 times in his gospel. Jesus' royal status, Jesus coming as Lord and King for Israel is crucial for Matthew and for his readers, predominantly a Jewish audience. The Jews to whom Matthew is writing to and for, they've been waiting and longing for the promised Messiah to come. They were looking forward, we read later and in other Gospels, for the salvation the Messiah would bring, for the consolation of Israel, for the redemption of Jerusalem. They've been waiting for the Messianic King to come who would deliver them from their oppressors, from their enemies, that one who would come and again establish the throne of David. And give Israel the peace and the rest that God had promised them would come through the son of David. Peace and rest and a land and a, that they'd lost through the hands of Assyria and Babylon because of their own disobedience and unfaithfulness and now under Roman rule. They were longing to be released from all of that and for things to be restored and even better. But if we look back even further, not just to David, as Matthew does here, and go back to Abraham, when you think about Israel, we often think of Israel, God's people, sitting under what? Under the law, under God's covenant with them at Mount Sinai with Moses, yes? But we actually need to see that, as we've been looking at Wednesday nights, actually need to see that covenant as being under an even greater covenant, and that is the covenant with Abraham. God's people, Israel, are under the Abrahamic covenant which is an everlasting covenant. The law was given, it was glorious, it was wonderful, it was for a time, particularly that they would remain in the land. But that covenant only ever came in under God's promise to Abraham that he would bless them, that Abraham would have many descendants, that would be the nation, and that that nation would be a blessing to the nations. And Matthew starts off with that. Abraham, how does Matthew finish? Ever connected the Great Commission with the Abrahamic Covenant? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the prisons, in the churches, in the Jordan, wherever, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. How are the nations going to be blessed through this people of God? 
Well, through being discipled, being taught everything that Jesus has said and through faith as they come and be baptised in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Someone gets baptised, that's the Abrahamic promise being fulfilled. The blessing of God's nation going out to the, of the church going out to the nations. And here we have 14 generations times three where Matthew is actually drawing this thread and saying, see how God's faithfulness, see how his word has been woven through history. Through these people, some of these names we know, Old Testament stories, great characters of the Old Testament, some we wouldn't know from a bar of soap. But this is like a golden thread of redemption throughout history. And if we look carefully at the names in this genealogy, I don't know about you, but whether it's Old Testament or New, sometimes when you get to these sections in your reading of the scriptures, you think, oh yeah, where's the action? Move on, move on. But if you don't do that, don't skip these sections and actually read name by name. Don't get bored. Father of such and such. There's actually some real doozies here. A lot of excitement, a lot of great characters. There's actually some real doozies. And when I mean doozies, I mean there are some names here and events around those names that if it was your history and mine, like I said, you might actually like to put it in the back of the closet and keep the skeletons there. Like prostitutes. Like incest in your family heritage. Adultery and murder. We probably don't want them on our family trees, do we? But that's not what God does. They're all here. Some of them are named particularly like they wouldn't normally be here. A family tree like this wouldn't normally mention women. It would normally just run down the fathers and the sons. Some of the women here are women you wouldn't want necessarily mentioned in your family tree and yet they're included. And whatever shameful past they've had, some of them are included here actually because of their faithfulness, not because of their shameful past and the way God has worked in them and through them to bring about his purposes, men and women. They say one of the, the marks of a good tradesman or versus a, a do-it-yourself handyman is that a, a good tradesman knows how to cover up their mistakes better. <laughs> You're a good tradesman. <laughs> I can still remember renovating our kitchen 17 years ago. We'd found some um, old Jarrah fence posts, good solid timber fence posts, uh, not fence posts, hay shed posts. They were six metres long. Um, and we had to get them uh, milled down into two-inch thick slabs couple of nails we had to make sure we got out so we didn't bust the saw that the fellows were using. We had them cut down and then gave them to my father-in-law to make some benches. Some of you know my father-in-law. This is the one time I think it was the closest I ever got to hearing him swear. <laughs> he didn't, but I tell you what, I reckon he was close. Because after weeks and weeks of working with these cut bits of timber and gluing them together and sanding them back and sanding them back again and putting more glue and getting rid of all the little bits and pieces and polishing it, and sanding it again, polishing it and sanding it again. He had this four and a half metre length with a little return on the end and custom made to fit our kitchen. It had been in his shed for weeks. Finally, he gets to try to install it in the kitchen. In, test it, cut a little bit more, do this, pull it out. Yep, okay, it's ready to go. Pulls it out one more time because we've got our sink now and he can cut the hole for the sink. And as he drops the saw in to do the final cut for the sink, I'm in the other room and I hear this, No! Because as he's dropped the saw, it kicked back on him and put this huge gouge in the timber. Not where the sink's going, but right back to the edge of the timber. Weeks of hard work and effort. And now it's just got this huge gouge, this huge rip in it. What do you do? 
well, good tradesman covers up their mistakes really well, which he did with a bit of silicon and nice bit of creative thinking and, okay, we could cut that and rather than the return doing this, we could make it do that. And most people wouldn't even know it's there. Now, the scriptures tell us that love covers a multitude of sins. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But you see, God and even his son, who was a carpenter, Jesus, here on earth, he doesn't just, he's not just a competent and capable tradesman who covers up mistakes and sin. He does something better. He has a plan and purpose from the very beginning designed in his divine workshop from before the foundation of the earth. And at just the right time, he brings that to fruition and shows us the wonder and the glory of it. And we're still waiting for the absolute glory of that to be shown to us. And what Matthew is telling us here is that way back from the time of Abraham and even before, all the way through these generations to David, even through the Babylonian captivity where Israel's sin, Judah's sin, was judged for what it was. God is at work and he's bringing about his plan and purposes. He's not just putting the sin aside to get it out of the way. He's actually working through our sin, through the messy families and the brokenness and the adultery and the murder, even the incest. None of the doozies here, the sin, the messiness, can alter the course that God has planned. More than that, God enters into that messiness to bring about his plan. As I said before, Jesus' birth is not some plan B, C or D after lots of little detours. No, it's God's plan from the very beginning through these generations. And Matthew is keen to show us that. But more than that, I think the way Matthew writes this, who he includes, who he doesn't include, who he raises up just for extra little bit of attention here and there, highlights the fact that God's promises are fulfilled not just despite some pretty messy family situations, but as I said, through them. They don't threaten or thwart his actions at all. He fulfills them in those people. You might think if God, sovereign, mighty Lord of all, if he's got a plan and purpose, he would start here and go to there and just take the straight route, wouldn't he? He doesn't. He calls his own people, humanity, people who are not his own to begin with, like Abraham, an idolater. And starts off his great plan of redemption for the nations through him. Another detour and another. And this almost circuitous, almost distracted course, but it's not distracted at all. It's part of his plan, part of his great scheme. Even through some of the most heinous sin you and I can think of. There are no skeletons in God's closet that he doesn't want us to see. And he tucks away in the back so that when we get the family tree, we just get all the nice bits. That's not how God works. God is totally transparent. And rather than these things casting shadows or stains upon the name of God and his family history in humanity, the messiness contained here actually serves to highlight the abounding grace of God to his family and to families like yours and mine. Because his love not only covers a multitude of sins, he doesn't just put a rug over it and pretend it's not there. In his mercy and his grace, his love has atoned for our sin. 
like yours and mine and Abraham's and David's and everyone in between. All the messy families, all the brokenness that if we looked at the details here, we would find. Go back and look up some of these names in your Old Testament. There are some great names here, aren't there? Abraham, names like Abraham and David, they weren't perfect either though. And then there's the Babylonian exile. But Matthew's showing us by naming some of the people here just how sinful some of these are. There's some really, really messy families. And there's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's kings and there's carpenters. There's men and there's women. And there's well-known ones and some we wouldn't know anything but their name here. Matthew's reminding us not only of God's great plan, but his great mercy to his people. Mercy seen through people like Boaz, who took Ruth to be his own. He was a kinsman redeemer. She was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile. She wasn't one of God's people. And yet he brings her into his home and takes her to be his own. And through that relationship, the line of Jesus is continued. And then we've got David. We've got Bathsheba and Uriah. We've got all of that messiness. That's mentioned here. It's not put aside. It's not hidden. Like murder and adultery, planned, thought about. God's mercy to his people. They're not erased from the history books. It's here for a reason. God is not squeamish when it comes to the sin of his own people. In fact, he wants us to see his abounding grace in the face of the sin, doesn't he? And there's more than one generation here where the, legitima- the, the, the legitimacy of the son begat by the father is questioned. Jesus himself, Joseph, wants to do something. He wants to put Mary aside, doesn't he? But then there's Tamar and her two sons, Perez and Zerah. Read up in your Old Testament how that one came about with Tamar and Judah. Not the sort of thing we'd be encouraging by any means. God doesn't ignore sin. He can't. Not in his holiness nor in his love for us. But nor does he let sin hinder his great plan. He uses it, he works in it, he works through it and he atones for it. And he atones for it in Jesus Christ who comes at the end of these 14 times three generations. But as we get to Jesus Christ, as I said, what we see is a whole lot of sinful, broken, messy people. Sinful, broken, messy families. Like yours and mine. Which tells us what? That no one is excluded from the plan of God. No one is excluded from participating in the great plan of redemption. That no family and no person and no sin and no event is too sinful or too great for God to do something with and do something about. You've heard from John and Nat their time at Kairos in the prison. None of those fellows in there, their sins no greater than yours or mine. Greater consequences, yes. But no greater sin in the face of God's holiness and what it does for our relationship with God. 
None of them are beyond God's saving reach. None of you are. None of your families. God uses them all. Rahab the prostitute, she's mentioned here. And then she's named in Hebrews 11 as one of the great heroes of the faith. Names that are great and small, big names, no names, mighty kings, messy families. Sinclair Ferguson likens this to a great tapestry. Look close enough and you just see each individual thread and the sort of loose ends, the individual knots. But step back and look at the whole picture and you have a marvellous tapestry of God's great plan of redemption woven through history to fulfil his purposes and his promises. Including us. And all of this is pointing to and culminating in the birth of Jesus, the Christ, who, as we're going to hear next week, this is the beginnings of the one who's described as Jesus. Name him that because he will save his people from their sins. I think that's one of the reasons Matthew starts with this genealogy. Two reasons. One, to explain who his people are. And two, to see what sort of sins he saves us from. His people here are not just the Jews. Because in this list are included all the children of Abraham, yes, but a whole lot of Gentiles from other nations as well come into this. Jews, Moabites, Gentiles, kings, carpenters, men, women, families, messy, broken, sinful. That's who Jesus' people are. And he has come to save us all. All these here, Jesus is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. That is to say, there is no family so messy, so broken, so sinful, no man, woman or child, no sin so great that God's hand cannot reach and rescue and save from their sin. He might not fix up all the mess and brokenness in our families. We've got Christmas coming up and I tell you what, in my family, my siblings and mum at the moment, we've got some doozies happening. Threatening never to go to Christmas again even. That's sad, isn't it? And some of you will be in that situation or worse, I know. But there is no messy, broken family that God is not able to reach out and save. More than that, that God might actually work through and bring redemption and reconciliation. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. If God can work through what David did, what Abraham has done, Rahab, Bathsheba, Tamar, Manasseh, one of the evil kings, and some good ones as well. God can work through all of that and bring about the birth of his own son to bring redemption for all the world. We should always be a hope-filled, expectant, eager, anticipating people, shouldn't we? In what God might do in our day and what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. As I, He may not fix up all our brokenness in our families. He hasn't promised that. One day that will all be gone in glory. But for now he is working and will be working in and through 
those sad situations. He would love it if our homes and families would just be together and united in love, wouldn't it? As would we. But even when we resist that, when we refuse to reconcile, or when others do, or when we even think about striving towards, working towards reconciliation, God is not hindered. He's still at work. Nothing can thwart his promises. That's not my promise. That's his promise to you. Fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a promise he made to David. It's a promise he made to Abraham. It's a promise he made all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one who would come and destroy the works of the devil. And he's come and fulfilled that in Jesus Christ through a whole lot of messy, broken families. The meaning of life, the universe and everything, it's not 42. But it can be seen at work here through 42 generations as God is bringing his meaning and his life and his purpose to humanity, bringing redemption to fulfilment through his son, Jesus Christ. Only in him will we find true meaning true forgiveness, full forgiveness and redemption. That's why we can rejoice and celebrate each and every Christmas and every day in between. Let's pray. Father God, I think it would be fair to say some of us here have lost our hope that you would work even in our own families. In our days, we see where the world is headed and wonder if it's all gone to pot. And yet, Father, we've been reminded this morning, I trust, how you are constantly working, not just working, but bringing redemption through some pretty messy and broken and sinful situations and families. And so, Father, without giving false hope, because we are a sinful, rebellious bunch. But help us, Father, to constantly see, to be refreshed in the knowledge that you are with us, Emmanuel, that you are at work saving us in your Son, Jesus. In and through our messiness and brokenness and even our families where we would long for there to be unity and love, and in many places and times there's not. Father, we ask that you would work your love and grace to us and through us to our own homes and wider afield, young and old. Father, whatever skeletons are deep in our own closets or the closets of our families, that we might know that you have actually come in by faith in the blood of your Son. Wash them clean. We need not be ashamed but can actually... Rejoice and boast in the abounding grace that abounds all the more as sin abounds. And so, Father, we ask that you would refresh us in the joy of salvation, in the coming of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and in all that he has done, and in his ongoing work as Lord of all, as our great High Priest, and as the living word, applied and made real in our own lives by your spirit. 
pray that you'd bless us into this season of Advent and through this series in the early chapters of Matthew. Speak to us this saving word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.